Welcome to the Unseminary Podcast. Are you looking for practical ministry help to drive your ministry further, faster? Have a sinking feeling that your ministry training didn't prepare you for the real world? Hey, you're not alone. Join thousands of others in pursuit of stuff that we wish they had taught in seminary. Buckle up and let's get started with this week's Unseminary Podcast. Hey friends, welcome to the Unseminary Podcast. So glad that you are tuned in. You know, every week we try to bring you a guest that will not only inspire, but also inform, equip you. And today is no exception. Super excited to have Pastor Dave Swain with us. He is from High Rock Covenant Church. It's a fantastic church that began in 1999 as a small group and grew into a congregation. Uh, But he's also the president of something called the High Rock Network, which is a family of churches with a shared vision for locally focused congregations. Dave, welcome to the show. So glad you're here today. Rich, I am so glad to be with you. I'm really looking forward to this conversation together. Yeah, this will be great. So why don't we start with, uh, tell us about High Rock, kind of give us the a bit of the story, the High Rock story and, and kind of the flavor of, of the congregation. Sure. Well, High Rock began, as you had mentioned, in uh, 1999. And you know, a lot of people just assume that I must be the planting pastor, but that's not really quite the story. Uh, in this case, there's a, a whole bunch of people who, some of them had met uh, at a, a church that had got, gone under. Uh, and were then spiritually homeless, and they just didn't have a church that they were really connecting with. Uh, They'd met together, a lot of them, when they were uh, students at Harvard or some of the other uh, nearby universities. And so one of them just started inviting people over uh, to their house for uh, dinner and a Bible study each week. And Mm. it's one of these things where it just kind of grew and grew and grew and grew, and uh, and it became, you know, uh, ethnically diverse, uh, age age diverse. It was kind of a, a really unusual group. And they started to ask the question after a number of months, hey, is God perhaps calling us to start a church, uh, which hadn't really been their goal from the beginning. Uh, but I think that one of the issues is, is that in Boston at that time, there just weren't churches as diverse as this little group was. And, and so for them to be able to ha- have a, you know, a lot of them had grown up in uh, mono-ethnic churches that were Korean or Chinese or Indian or whatever it was, uh, which was great for them. But the people that they'd gotten to know, uh, people at work and the people at school, uh, the people that they'd gotten to know and love, they thought, you know, these people would would really be interested in Jesus, I think. But mm. they'd stumble over our churches, right? Sometimes because they're in a non-English language, uh, other times because you know, the culture and, uh, and, and faith were so completely inter, intertwingled, intermingled that people couldn't, it was going to be a challenge to get past some of the cultural issues so that people could really have an encounter with Jesus. And so they thought, hey, we'd like to create a church where we can invite the people that we love, all these different kinds of people that we, we are, are working and studying with. And so they started asking God if that was what their call was. And along the way, uh, they then asked me, I was working at a, a wonderful local church, uh, in a different local church, but they asked me if I'd be willing just to partner with them and help them start a church. And uh, as we did, you know, they shared their dreams and I shared my dreams. We thought, wow, our backgrounds are so different. I'm, I'm a, a, a white guy who grew up in the greater Boston area. Uh, I'm, you know, I, we just we had such different backgrounds in one sense, and yet we had the same passion and calling because I didn't grow up as a Christian. And so for me, church culture was an incredible barrier. Uh, when I started mm-hmm. to get into know Jesus as a, a high school kid, I had to learn all the language from scratch. And I was doing code switching constantly trying to figure out what are these 
you know, we, I called them born agains at that time. What do these born agains mean by that? And I try to translate <laughs> into my New England language. Well, this is the same kind of thing a lot of these other folks had been doing for years uh, because of various ethnic uh, uh, challenges. And so we all sort of had this common cause together. How could we create a place we can invite all kinds of people that we thought would be really interested in Jesus to, to meet Jesus together without some of those familiar stumbling blocks of culture they're going to get in the way? And so we started a church, you know, the name High Rock, everybody assumes it's biblical because it sounds biblical-ish, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And in fact, in Psalm 27, you know, God says, uh, uh, you know, I, I will place you out of reach on a high rock. But that has nothing to do with why we're called High Rock. I found that after I'd been working here for two years, uh, the, uh, the, that house where everyone was gathering for dinner mm-hmm. and a Bible study mm-hmm. was on High Rock Street. And so it just mm. started becoming known as, hey, are you going to High Rock? I'm going to High Rock. I'll see you at High Rock. <laughs> And the name just stuck, and here we are. And so that was 20 years ago, and, uh, and I've been working with them ever since and have just loved being a part of this church. And then, um, you know, we've, we've grown and, um, mm-hmm. and split, and so we kept on you know, trying to figure out how we realized our geography itself was a limitation. You know, mm. a, a Christian will drive 45 minutes to church without thinking twice, but their non-Christian next-door neighbor who's asking a lot of great spiritual questions probably won't come with them. So our thought was, we've got to figure out how to bring the church to them. And so we just, we literally in, in uh, 2008, we split our church in half. Half of our staff and half of our members moved six miles away to start a second congregation just because we wanted new neighbors. And then we did that again in 2012, actually twice in 2012. And then we just kept doing it. And now we've got 10 locations around greater Boston. And uh, so, yeah, that's kind of our story. Wow, so cool. So much to unpack there and to, to, to uh, kind of kick around and focus in on. Uh, I'd love to hear more about really the, the church's journey to becoming, you know, multicultural, multi-ethnic. It, 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 that uh, stick out, sticks out to me as something that I think we all need to be leaning into and learning from. So kind of talk us through that journey. What's that been like for uh, High Rock? Well, you know, uh, this has actually been part of our story from the beginning, but has taken a pretty sharp turn recently. In the beginning, uh, we, you know, as I said, this group on High Rock Street was very diverse. But as soon as we got going, uh, as soon as we actually started a church proper, we really grew with a lot of Koreans. And so predominantly, we were almost exclusively, in fact, a Korean church after a year or two, which I always was happy with. I, I'm not Korean, but... Uh, I just, you know, we loved each other and we were a family together. And so I felt right at home. And, uh, and so we, we grew together. I never really had an agenda to change that. But after about two years, suddenly a, a, a large population of Chinese people started to join us. And, mm. uh, and then over the years, we became Pan-Asian. You know, we, got, uh, we have a big Japanese ministry now as well. And um, so we just got more and more of these folks. Uh, and then it was interesting we had very few white people. I mean, like, you know, we had maybe 200 people on a Sunday, three or four max would be white. And the game changer for that was when we, uh, we bought a building and we bought, you know, a traditional looking church right in the center of town. And it was then that a bunch of white people started showing up. And I think we suddenly seemed normal enough. Uh, and, and so I thought, well, that's an interesting mix. So you know, up until, you know, from that time that we bought the building in 2006, up until, uh, you know, beginning of last summer, I would say that we're probably 40% white, 40% Pan-Asian. And then, you know, that remaining 20%, it was Indian, um, 
uh, African, not African American mm-hmm. very much, but a lot of Africans, mm-hmm. um, and you know, kind of little bits of of, of a lot of stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. But we made a real pivot uh, actually after the the murder of George Floyd. Mm-hmm. We started to realize that while you know people walk into our congregations and they think, "Oh my gosh, this is so diverse." Um, we started to really feel convicted about the fact that uh, there was a, a significant population in America that was not well represented in our church, uh, and that's mm. African Americans. And so there are some, but there just there weren't that many. And uh, and started to realize that maybe we needed to be more thoughtful about addressing some of these issues that we had never really felt like we needed to take seriously because we were really welcoming. Um, mm. But we started to realize that we were not as welcoming as we thought we were to uh, certain populations. And we had to kind of lean in on that. Yeah, I'd I'd love to hear more about that. I think, um, you know, it may be tempting if you're listening in to say, you know, obviously your church is around Massachusetts. You say, hey, that's a culturally, uh, you know, and ethnically diverse area. But the reality of it is every zip code in the country is more diverse today than it was 10 years ago and will be more diverse 10 years from now than it is today. And so all of our churches need to wrestle through how how are we proactively making some steps, uh, you know, to to become more multicultural, to become more multi ethnic? It sounds like you you identified, hey, you know, there there were maybe some areas that you're not representing the community. What have you done to to try to take steps towards uh, to be a you know better reflection of the community uh, to to kind of be, increase your uh, you know the diversity at your church? You know, the easy answer that everybody went to right away is, hey, we just need to hire more black pastors. Um, and as much as I, I think that made sense, it, it misses something significant for, you know, I'm going to just, I'm going to speak, be real here. And I know this is going to be kind of hard for a lot of people to hear, but a, a black pastor coming into our church gives up a lot, right? The kind of person we're going to hire people who are high caliber the kind of person we're going to hire could be the, the lead pastor of a, of a small black church or even a medium-sized black church, at which point that person would get paid more. Mm-hmm. They'd probably get a lot more respect, right? In, in a lot of cultures, they just give pastors a lot more honor than, than we, mm-hmm. we tend to in, in, uh, in mainstream white culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, that person w- wouldn't always having to be do, doing all the work of code switching, right? If you you bring a, a black pastor into a largely white and Asian space, then what they're going to have to do is constantly be, you know, trying to uh, interpret what other people are saying and asking. Right. Uh, and if they have a family, they're asking their family to do that. Now, all of us have to bend and yield to each other, right? So mm-hmm. if I were to hire one or two uh, black pastors, well, I'd have to yield, you know, 2%. I mean, 2% of my time, I'd have to be doing that cultural work. But for that person, it would be 100% of the time. And because the way that churches work, you know, you, it's not just a job. It, it becomes your community. So that means I'm asking this pastor and potentially his or her family to do this 24 hours a day. That's a huge ask, simply so that we can experience the benefit of multi-ethnicity. And I started to realize, I, you know, there, there's this, uh, I, there, there's, uh, there's white supremacy right there. I expect that a black pastor is going to want to come into our space. Why would I assume that? 
and then that they feel privileged to be in this space. Why would I assume that? And, mm-hmm. and I don't think about the cost that they would have to pay in order to serve us. Uh, and, and so as a result, we ask for it thoughtlessly. So we realized that couldn't be the solution. And yet we did want to get uh, people, uh, pe- black Americans uh, who have had a very different cultural experience to be able to be in positions of power and, and be able to have real voice. Uh, and so we really had to figure out new ways to, to try to tackle that problem. That's well, first of all, I think there's some fascinating insights in there, and I think some challenging self-reflection to say, hey, what you know, the way we think about this issue, the uh, um, could even reveal uh, some unpleasant, you know, kind of realities about ourselves that we need to attack and we need to we need to look at and consider as we step forward. So, what were some of those kind of practical tactics that you stepped towards? Uh, you know, in order to make those steps to kind of make, um, you know, the kind of step towards if it was hiring or, or, you know, whatever these first few steps were, what were some of those practical steps that you took? Well, there are a number of them. So um, we kind of pursued a several of them simultaneously. Uh, first, you know, I'm a part of a, um, a, a, a stream of evangelical Christianity that's got some, you know, pretty reliable industries. And, and so it's, pretty easy when I'm going to go do hiring. There's a, a certain uh, set of hiring firms that I'm going to call and say, hey, I need to, you know, I need to have you kind of do a search for me. And they are, they have a clientele that's going to be largely similar to our church, which is to say these kind of mainstream evangelical multi-ethnic churches. But one of the things that, uh, there's a, a great book called The Elusive Dream by Corey Little Edwards. And she's a sociologist. I think she's at Duke now. And she studied multi-ethnic churches in America. And one of the things that she discovered is if you close your eyes to Hugh, that all, even uh, the multi-ethnic churches in America are actually white culture in terms of the way that they worship and the way they preach and the, addresses, the issues that they address. Even if it's a majority leadership or exclusive leadership, uh, you know, black or Latino leadership, they, if, if it is a multi-ethnic church that has at least 20% white people, culturally, it's going to be a white church because, you know, people of color in our country have had to learn how to acclimate and, and thrive in white culture. Mm. But white people haven't had to do that. And as a result, we're not very good at it. Uh, we're not good at not getting our way. We expect everything to be our way. And and what we end up doing, you know, I, I reflected on the fact that I'd been at a number of, of really great multi-ethnic churches, but what we really were was just incredibly welcoming white churches where mm. the nature of our welcome, we've never have said it this way, but this is what we meant. We're going to pretend not to notice that you're not white. Mm. That's our welcome to you. Hmm. And when you say it out loud like that, you realize, what? Yeah. This is the most awful yeah, idea. Yes, yeah, yes, yes. And yet it seems so generous to us at the time because that's the baked in white supremacy that we just assume that these people would be glad to be in our space and we're giving them the privilege of just pretending we don't notice huge parts about who they are. And I thought, man, that. so the first thing we really had to do is, is ask the questions about our own culture. Where are we unintentionally white? Where are we kind of pursuing forms or making choices that we just didn't notice that we were making? Uh, so we've really been analyzing a lot about our services and, and uh, uh, even the topics that we preach to become a little mm-hmm. bit more mindful of that. 
That was the first thing. Yeah, make, that's amazing. So first of all, I think it's a really good insight. Um, help us understand what are some of those areas where, yeah, you in your self reflection, you've you, you know you've realized, oh yeah, like we are unintentionally, um, you know, being more white. Um, what are some of those changes that you've made? What is that? What's that look like? Well, it, a lot of it because, of course, we can't be meeting in person uh, right now during the the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of it we cannot do yet because it really involves a lot of the actual being together in worship services. So, for example, in our church, if you were really moved by the Spirit and you raised your hand, nobody would say a thing, but you would definitely be one of the few people doing that, right? New England people are famously not very emotive. And uh, and so we're going to... said it, not me. <laughs> yeah. and, and so we're, we're just going to kind of keep it close to the vest. But... Uh, but in, in a, a, a black church, right, there's all kinds of interaction between right. the, the congregation and, and the, the people up, up front and, you know, talking back and forth, uh, movement, all that kind of stuff. And so we thought, all right, well, we want to be less stiff. Not that everybody needs to do any of these things, but that everybody should feel welcome doing them and encouraged doing it and at home responding in a way that's natural. Uh, we are our services are, you know, pretty tight at an hour and 15 minutes, just like all white services are. Whereas, uh, you know, black churches, you kind of have a service that goes three hours and we wanted to be, start to be thoughtful. What are we, what are we cutting in order to be so rigid about time that we wouldn't do if we were trying to be a little bit more ethnically inclusive or culturally inclusive? Um, there are a whole bunch of things like that. In fact, uh, Edwards lists seven things in her book that she noticed that were different in white churches versus black churches. And she's noticed that all the multi-ethnic churches defaulted to the white side of the spectrum rather than the black side of the spectrum. We just thought, hey, we just want to be more thoughtful about those things. Uh, so it a, it's a bunch of you know, the, talking about uh, systemic issues rather than individual issues, right? In mm-hmm. White churches, we talk about individual issues. But black churches have done a great job of talking about systemic, not just political systems and, and society, but even understanding that the, the corporate nature of, of sin and satanic attack, we just don't talk like that in, in mm-hmm. you know, typical white churches, but that's a way we want to grow. Interesting. Interesting. Super, Super fascinating. fascinating. So, so what ways have you, um, you know, part of this is a leadership um, issue and, and it's how do we encourage, expose um, ensure that we're providing kind of the right table at the seat to a wide variety of people from a wide variety of backgrounds. How have you been able to provide, uh, you know, to really ensure more voices or more variety of voices in your leadership and for that not to be just tokenism, right? For it not just to be, um, oh, like we're, you know, you're here because of, but actually, hey, we want to, we want to create a space at the table and we want to ensure that that, um, you know, does actually carry weight. How, how have you been able to do that as a, as a leader? Well, we've got three things that we did that were all based on the idea of trying to uh, center voices of color and give people not just a place at the table, but power at the table. Uh, you know, a lot of times pe- people of color are, are you know, given a seat, but they don't really have much power there. And But we're proud of ourselves. Look how diverse we are in, you know, the people who, who have a seat here. So we want, try to be really thoughtful about those two things. And in a church, when you're trying to think about power, there's really two primary forms. 
The first is official leadership. And the second is who preaches. And, and so we've really been trying to address uh, those things. And we did three things. First is we decided to, uh, we were in the middle already of a hiring process. And we actually stopped because I was going through one of these normal searches that I would go through with a search company that's mm-hmm. going to get people who already represent our multi-ethnic, you know, slash white kind of church tradition. And uh, say, hey, we've got, if we want to get different voices, we've got to actually look in different places. Uh, and so I, I started going to networks that were not in my network, you know, but using some personal relationships that I had to get into a, a different networks and start just interviewing different people. Uh, we ended up hiring a, uh, a, a guy, a black guy from, he was from Georgia, uh, just had finished up seminary at Duke, and uh, he was looking for a job. And I'm telling you, he has been, he was one of those like fish in water. He came and he just took off here. It was, mm, it was so fantastic, cool. but he's somebody I never would have met if I'd gone through the normal steps. So that was the first thing is we started to be deliberate about hiring. We then, um, you know, a bunch of our, you know, a lot of us in the pandemic have had to make a lot of tech hires. Mm-hmm. So we've deliberately been trying to hire people of color uh, who are going to be shaping our services, uh, shaping our, our uh, social media messaging. So hiring, that was the first. The second prong is uh, we were deliberate. We, you know, we have a number of uh, members of color. Mm-hmm. And yet for a lot of different reasons, you know, part of it is cultural and, and, and all that, that you know, white people tend to like to lead, uh, whereas Asian people often won't push themselves to the front of the pack. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so you know, they just need to be invited up in a different way. So we've been doing, we've been already thoughtful about how to do that with our, our leadership board. But we end up uh, also then being deliberate about bringing in uh, some people of color, uh, a black woman who is a longtime wonderful member of our church. And that board is really the most powerful uh, entity officially in the church. And so uh, that was our second step. Um, and then our third step, uh, and this is actually the one that is the most transferable for a lot of people, because you know, as you mentioned, Boston is pretty diverse. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you live in, I could imagine, you know, I've honestly never been there, but I could imagine that there's, you know, parts of the Midwest where it'd be really difficult to hire a person of color, even if you wanted to, uh, just because it's not a super diverse place. And mm-hmm. um, well, the pandemic, we realized, gave us an incredible opportunity. We are not meeting live during the pandemic. And we had actually made a decision in June of last year that we would not meet again until September of 2021. So everything is like all in online. Mm -hmm. But that gives us an opportunity because nobody cares where you are online, Mm -hmm. right? It's geographically Mm -hmm. neutral. So what I went through and and did is, is, you know, I've had a lot of great relationships with, uh, you know, of course, of people of all different ethnicities. And this allowed me to then hire them. So we actually created something called the Revelation 7 faculty. Revelation 7, right, verse 9, that's where we read about the, the church that's going to be in heaven, every tribe and tongue and nation. And so we, we decided to hire a Revelation 7 faculty, and it was six preachers of color who then come in and they preach now in our service rotation, because we already had a, a kind of a team preaching model. We've added these six new people to our preaching rotation. And so that every you know two, three, four weeks, one of these folks is preaching. And they're not preaching about race, but they're preaching whatever it is that we're, you know, we are in in that series. They're preaching it as who they are which means they're going to tell different stories. They're going to ask different questions. 
And so it's going to stop centering the white experience, right? My experience and, and start to normalize other people's perspectives and experiences, which then people in the, the, the congregation can start to recognize and go, Hey, that's my story. Hey, that's the, the kind of the, the way that I approach this. And so we've, we found that that's just made us, uh, you know, much better able to, to reach and engage a wider swath of people. Yeah, that's fantastic. I love that. I think that's a super practical and, you know, I appreciate how you're balancing out, um, you know, how do we do this in a way that is, um, is inclusive, uh, but creates actual, uh, change. And, you know, you're, you're looking to try to structure, uh, to really make a long-term difference, to try to make a difference, um, you know, beyond just, Hey, let's, let's, uh, you know, make some short-term gains here. So I, I love that. I think that's fantastic. Kind of pivoting in a bit of a, a different direction. I wonder if you could tell us kind of, and I mentioned it off the top uh, about the, the, the high rock network. Can you give us a sense of how, how does that network hang together? How do these 10 churches that have been planted, how do you relate to each other? What does that look like? How, you know, how are you kind of working together? How, and what, what, and how is that making a difference in uh, the communities that you serve? You know, as we were starting the church, um, we did not plan on a network and we kind of fell into it by um, sort of by accident. We were motivated by mission to split the church in two. And then there were two of us. And then we were motivated by mission to start two new churches. And the uh, the way that we were thinking about that was not at all organizationally. And, and this was pretty early in the networking movement. Now there's networks everywhere. But back then, there really weren't that many models to follow. And so uh, we, we started them, and the, the language as I was using is that we're independent, but in love. And so from day one, we'd plant the church, we'd send a staff, um, and we would pay, the, you know, in declining fashion, we and our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church, would pay for their expenses for the first three years. Okay, but from yep. day one, I did not have any voice in how that money was spent. So I had no authority, but I had tons of relationship. And we did that again and again and again, and that's how we built our network. Here's one of the things that I've learned subsequently, that uh, those networks like that work perfectly if you've got three, you know, one, two, or three uh, churches in your network. As soon as you get beyond three, you start needing a little bit more structure. Um, but, and, you know, I'd be glad to have somebody point out where this is not true. In all of my research, and I spend tons of time now talking with network leaders, I've yet to find the network that was able to go beyond seven without any kind of hierarchy or control. Mm. Um, and I, I just think that seven probably is that natural number where after that, you just, you cannot, there's not enough emotional space to be able to maintain the depth of relationships that you need to have in order to keep the movement working forward. If all it's based on is mutual love. And because that requires a certain kind of investment. The other thing I didn't plan through is, you know, I, I, I'm planning to be here forever, right? And it just never occurred to me that some of the other staff, the other pastors who are planning these other churches might eventually leave. Well, all of the people who were originally the pastors of our churches all have worked for me for several years. So we have a very close relationship. But the next generation pastor may or may not. And so we realized we had to make a pivot. And so what we actually ended up doing is we've now created, uh, we've got two networks, sort of a network within a network, uh, where we've got the 10 churches, uh, six of them 
are still the independent but in love. And four of them are actually united together now as one church. And in fact, one of the other six is in the process of now rejoining kind of the the mothership uh, in a little bit tighter kind of experience, more of a traditional multi-site. That's fascinating because, you know, the thing I love there, well, first of all, there's lots I love there. I love the idea of, um, which I think we've seen, we see across, I've been involved in multi-site for years, that, you know, there, there, it's like this combo of both structure and relationship is ultimately what holds um, multi-sites together. The thing I love that you started with is the relational piece. And then it sounds like you're adding the structure in where I feel like, uh, there's an immediate jump to, and this might be related to our previous conversation or previous part of this conversation around, you know, maybe a, a white, a white cultural bias. It's like we start with the structure and then hope that eventually relationship will catch up. Um, but I think that's a good word for us to be thinking about how we do these networks that we really need both sides of those equation and, you know, kind of what is our process to get both of those, uh, you know, running well. That's interesting. That's fascinating. So then, so then today it's really an, a mixture of what would be a more traditional kind of multi-site church with then a constellation of other churches that, that are, are connected, you know, are sharing some resources, but are independent in other ways. Is that, is that the best way to kind of understand, or is that one way to understand yeah, how that hangs together? That's exactly what it is. So th- we've got one, uh, the group of four churches who actually have one service, one staff, one leadership board, one budget. And then we've got the other six churches that are all um, still the independent, but in love. So we work together a lot. Uh, we, we talk together, we confer, we share ideas, we do things in, you know, in tandem together. Sometimes we'll do sermon series together, but it's all completely optional. There's no formal obligation in that. Uh, but we just, we want to see each other be successful. Yeah, that's really cool. Love that. Well, as you can uh, hear, listeners, there is so much here that I would love to unpack with with Dave. There's so much good learning for us, uh, but we've you know we've got a limited amount of time. Dave, what uh, what else would you love to share? Just as we kind of wrap up today's episode, as we kind of come in to land this plane, what anything else that comes to mind? I would say two things that might be helpful. Um, the first is as we're talking about that Revelation Seven faculty, one of the reasons it's so accessible is these people all have full time jobs somewhere else. So all I'm paying them is $3,500 each, and it's for the year, which is super affordable, right? So that means for, for less than $30,000, because one of them I've hired actually to sit on our board, uh, so she makes quite a bit more. But the, yeah. the others are just, they're preaching two or three times, a sermon they've already written for another environment, but have been modified for us. So it's a light lift for them and a huge benefit for us in a really affordable way. And I think for a lot of churches, that could be a, a, a much more approachable way to be able to get in some uh, you know, new perspectives and new voices. Um, the other thing I'd say, one of the things that's unusual about our, our, uh, our, ch- our church culture, um, and I, you know, it's maybe some churches do this, but I don't hear about it very often. Uh, when we write a sermon, so for example, if I write a sermon, if I'm going to preach on a Sunday, uh, by Wednesday, the previous Wednesday, I publish that to all of our staff, and then they tear it apart. And, Mm. and so, and we'll have, you know, 10 or 12 different people all writing in and commenting and, oh, this is not funny. Uh, actually here's, this would be funny though. Uh, Hey, I'm not sure I really like the exegesis you're doing there. I'm not sure that that's faithful. And let me tell you why we'll have arguments about everything. And these are sharp communicators, but here's what happens is a lot of people think, oh gosh, that would be an awful experience. It's the opposite. 
Because then when I'm getting up on a Sunday or nowadays when I'm getting up in front of a camera, I know that this sermon has been passed through the, the prism of these really thoughtful preachers. And so I have this incredible confidence. And even if I say something stupid, well, I've got a bunch of people who are going to take the blame with me because, man, we all, we all let that one slip. I don't know how we missed it. And, and there's this incredible collegiality, an incredible safety. It allows us to, to not hurt people that we would otherwise. Uh, you know, just because you just don't make that little slip that was hurtful to some population that wasn't you. Um, mm-hmm. And it's been incredible for our young preachers. You know, we, we have a, a number of uh, younger women who preach. And in a lot of churches, I'll tell you, people are harsh to them. And so by the time that any one of uh, our, our young younger preachers are getting up there, I've personally read that sermon multiple times. And I've personally said, I think this is a great word. So if somebody's going to come and criticize, hey, you got to come through me, friend, because right. I take responsibility yeah. for that. Oh, that's good. And that has been such a liberating thing for all of us on the team. And I really encourage folks to, to find some group. You know, if you don't have a multi-site church or a multi-staff church like we do, find some other preachers that you can do this with. And uh, man, I just think it's such a gift. Yeah, that's so good. Love that. That's a real practical um, and bold uh, kind of next step, the the Revelation 7 uh, group. And the, I just think that's so great. Fan, fantastic. Well, Dave, I've really appreciated you being on today's episode. If people want to track with you or with the church, where do we want to send them online? How do we want to get them uh, you know, connected? What, what do we want to do there? Well, High Rock Online. So that's, the, that's where we are, uh, either you know, highrockonline.org and High Rock Online yeah. on Facebook. Those are really our two places that... Uh, that we're spending most of our time these days. Perfect. Dave, appreciate you being here. Thanks so much. Thanks for uh, for all you're doing and just cheering you on as we uh, pivot into a new year here, 2021. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Rich, I really appreciate uh, being invited on here and I, I love getting to know you and I'm looking forward to more conversations. Thank you for tuning in to this week's Unseminary podcast. Don't be shy. We'd love to connect. Check out Unseminary Inbox. You can sign up at unseminary.com and we'll send you helpful training resources every week. Plus, you'll gain immediate access to our exclusive members area with tons of resources you can use. Connect with Rich on Twitter at Rich Birch or through email rich at unseminary.com Don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode at unseminary.com It includes links to what we talked about today and more. Leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Did you enjoy today's episode? Drop by iTunes and leave a review. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's Unseminary podcast. Join us next week when we'll learn more stuff we wish they taught in seminary. <laughs>